Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. If you watched any hour of Fox News yesterday, odds are you saw one of these. An ad for election denier Mike Lindell's My Pillow Pillow or an ad for his My Slipper Slippers. We scrolled through the entire day, time we will never get back, and counted 30 ads by Mike Lindell in a 24-hour period. Now, even though that is a lot of advertising for slipper slippers, that is not a scandal. Mr. Lindell can spend as much of his company's money on Fox as he would like. But what is alarming about the sheer volume of Fox ad time that is occupied by Mr. Lindell, what is alarming is this. On December 17th, 2020, the CEO of Fox News was forwarded this email by an executive in the Fox News communications department. My Pillows Mike Lindell was on Newsmax tonight and criticized Fox News quite a bit, saying it looked like we were in on stealing the election from Trump. He did say that he wouldn't pull ads over it, but he did make suggestive comments about our audience being smaller than before. The next morning, Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott replied, has my personal note and gift been sent to Mike? Meanwhile, Fox continued to let Mike Lindell on their air as a guest so he could push the big lie that the election was stolen. Now, we have these emails because yesterday a gigantic drop of raw evidence in the billion-dollar defamation lawsuit between the Dominion Voting Systems Corporation and Fox News that was released. It is such a gigantic amount of emails and texts and deposition transcripts that even now, more than 24 hours later, we are still not through it all. But one of the things that we are seeing again and again here in this pile of evidence is that the typical firewalls and guardrails, the checks and balances that you would expect from a real news organization, well, they just weren't there. There is a clear conflict of interest in having someone like Mike Lindell as both an on-air guest pushing the conspiracy theory that the election was stolen, a theory, by the way, that Fox News appears to have known was not true, and at the very same time, having Lindell as a major advertiser on the network. An advertiser important enough that the network CEO was sending Lindell personal notes and gifts to try to keep Fox on Lindell's good side. From these emails, we're seeing that there was literally no division between advertising and editorial. Mike Lindell played in both worlds. <clears throat> he was allowed to promote the big lie on Fox airwaves because apparently that's what was going to keep him selling pillows on the same airwaves and keep the Fox audience buying pillows, maybe also slippers. The emails further reveal the nakedly partisan objectives of the news division over at Fox. Here's the exchange between host Maria Bartiromo and informal Trump advisor Steve Bannon a few days after the election was called in November 2020. Bartiromo. I want to see massive fraud exposed. Will he be able to turn this around? I told my team we are not allowed to say president-elect at all, not in scripts or in banner or on air, until this moves through the courts. Bannon. 71 million voters will never accept Biden. This process is to destroy his presidency before it starts, if it even starts. Bartiromo, but I'm sad and scared. Bannon, you are our fighter. Enough with the sad. We need you. Bartiromo, okay. That is Fox News host Maria Bartiromo plotting with one of the most influential strategists in the Republican Party about how to delegitimize the rightfully elected president of the United States. At one point, Bannon even tells her he wants Bartiromo to run for Senate against Chuck Schumer, all as part of some big Republican strategy to win back control of the U.S. government. It is all very, very wild stuff. 
But the wildest part of what we learned from yesterday's release of evidence was that this kind of behavior goes all the way to the top. We showed you last night how Rupert Murdoch, the owner of the media empire that owns Fox News, how Murdoch admitted in his deposition that he gave senior Trump advisor Jared Kushner a preview of the Biden campaign's ads before they were public, specifically to help the Trump campaign, to give them an edge in crafting their strategy. This is an email from Murdoch to Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott in September of 2020. Murdoch explains that he just talked to President Donald Trump, who told Murdoch which Fox News hosts he liked and which he didn't like based on their coverage of him. Murdoch thought it wise to let the CEO of Fox News know those preferences so she could act accordingly. Then there is this email, again from Murdoch to the CEO of Fox News, this time complaining about an apparent outburst Fox host Lou Dobbs had against Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Murdoch asks, could Sean, meaning Fox host Sean Hannity, could Sean say something supportive? We can't lose the Senate, if at all possible. Does that we mean we, the Republican Party? Does it mean Fox News? It is kind of hard to tell where one stops and the other begins. Here's another one, again, from Murdoch to the CEO of Fox News, this time in November of 2020, after the general election, once it was clear that control of the Senate would be decided by runoff elections in Georgia. Quote, we should concentrate on Georgia, helping any way we can. Who is the we here? It turns out over and over again that that question is hard to answer when you're talking about the highest levels of Fox News. And if you have any doubt of the kind of power that Rupert Murdoch has had over Fox and our national discourse, hear it from the man himself. Tonight, the voting machine company Dominion filed their final brief, asking the court to decide in its favor without a trial. And in that brief, one of the key pieces of evidence comes from the deposition of Rupert Murdoch. When asked if he, as the owner of Fox News, could have stopped conspiracy theorists like Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell from appearing on Fox News, Murdoch said, quote, I could have, but I didn't. Joining us now is California Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman, thank you so much for being here. I know that you have previously said about this Dominion lawsuit uh, and the uh, related revelations that Fox endangers Americans. And I wonder what you think of this latest batch and what role you think Fox plays in the future of our democracy. Well, I'm, you know, shocked on the one hand. On the other hand, not at all surprised. Uh, I think we always knew that, uh, you know, buried within Fox, uh, there was a motive to uh, essentially be state-run TV for the Republican Party, a time state-run TV for Donald Trump. But to see it so graphically, to see it in black and white, to see Rupert Murdoch basically say that uh, it's all about the money. Uh, that this was all about keeping profit, keeping ratings up, to see, you know, Tucker Carlson privately talk about how much he despised Donald Trump uh, and sing his praises on the air, to talk about privately how absurd these fraud claims are, and then to highlight people making those absurd fraud claims, uh, to see, you know, people like Tucker Carlson talking about firing people who actually call the election correctly because it hurts the money-making at Fox. It is so uh, destructive of the country, what they're doing, and the motive could not be any more clear. It's just all about the money. Uh, and I do think that what they've done to the country has just been terrible. Uh, they played a pivotal role in, in the promulgation of the big lie. 
in, in causing distrust of our elections. Uh, they're now playing a pivotal role in trying to rewrite history uh, about the uh, insurrection, which might encourage further violence. Uh, and also, let's not forget Tucker Carlson using that big platform uh, to essentially talk up Kremlin talking points uh, in the war in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it just couldn't be more destructive uh, of the country, of democracy. And it's all about the money. Given your role on the January 6th committee, I wonder if you could let us know the degree to which Fox was a topic of conversation as you were all were investigating the roots of the insurrection, as you all were trying to demonstrate the to show the American public what happened that day. Was Fox something you talked about? Was Fox something you considered in that attempt to overthrow democracy? Fox is something that we talked about. Uh, and, you know, we did, uh, as you know, look into the effect of social media uh, and some of the uh, whistleblower and uh, insights we got uh, from people at the different platforms at Facebook and at Twitter. But we also talked about Fox uh, and we looked at academic analysis of how Fox played an equally big role in promulgating the big lie. Uh, we did make the decision that where information we received was on the basis of sort of expert input, uh, that we were going to rely more on the testimonies or the fact-based testimony that we received uh, rather than broadening our report to cover what academia had to say. But nonetheless, we were conscious of the Fox effect. Uh, and that's a much more difficult one at the end of the day to deal with. Than social media, where you can take away their immunity, you can hold them liable. There are, are tools Congress has. But with Fox delivered on a private pipeline, you can't impose a fairness doctrine as you could with public airways that are owned by the public. The only way to go after the lies on Fox is to go after the money on Fox, which is why the Dominion litigation is so important. Uh, it's why uh, people that are advertising, not the pillow guy, but uh, credible companies. Uh, shouldn't be advertising, in my personal view, uh, on a company that is knowingly pushing out such divisive lies. Um, <clears throat> do you do you th I mean, I think you've answered this question in terms of what can be done beyond the lawsuit, beyond going after Fox's coffers. I know that Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries sent a letter uh, earlier this month to Rupert Murdoch demanding he rein in Fox News hosts and make them admit on air that they were wrong to engage in negligent behavior. It doesn't sound like you believe the federal government or the Congress can play any further role in, in basically disabusing Fox of its wicked ways, if you will. Uh, but what, you know, what do you can you can you conjure up a scenario in which Fox is held accountable? Is it the resolution of this Dominion suit potentially where they would have to admit on their own air that they lied? I mean, what recourse is there for people who are reading this stuff and not only horrified by the malfeasance, but but terrified about the future of the country when people are so willing to lie to the American public? Uh, you know, I really think that probably the only remedies uh, are going to be the financial ones. Uh, and it's why the Dominion litigation is so important. Uh, if they get hit with a multi-billion dollar uh, penalty, that will get their attention. Uh, they cannot be shamed. Uh, you know, you would think that these emails now being published, these text messages showing what knowing liars they are, uh, showing Murdoch admitting that, yeah, he could have put a stop to the lies, but he didn't because it's all about the, the money, all about the green. Uh, uh, you would think that would be shame enough, but of course, they can't be shamed. 
because what's motivating them isn't conscience. It isn't doing the right thing. It isn't even their reputation. It's just the money. Uh, and so this litigation, if there's litigation over the lies they pushed in the pandemic and people died because of those lies and privately in email communications, they're talking about how they need to take precautions within the company because this virus isn't like the flu, then there's other liability. Lies they pushed about, uh, you know, the, the officers, you know, the lies that Tucker Carlson pushing about the death of uh, Officer Sicknick, uh, that exposes them to further liability. Uh, and maybe that's going to be the only thing that gets their attention. The green, the thing that they care the most about. California Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you as always for your time and thoughts, sir. Thank you. Joining me now is Angelo Carasone, chairman and president of Media Matters. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. I know that your organization has been aggressive in following Fox, what Fox is doing, but you all have also taken specific action in the course of this Dominion lawsuit. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I think, you know, we are, we have been following this very closely. Just to give an example, I mean, there's actually been 1,261 MyPillow ads on Fox News so far this year. You guys have been, <laughs> count- you're the unlucky souls that have been counting that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, we, we have taken action. And I, I, one of them is the follow through on some of this. And I think the discussion you were having earlier about what's going to happen now, what's the consequences, where's the accountability? I, I think we're going to start to see it. And part of it is going to be financial. Part of it's going to be their power because they are stra- sort of straddled between a rock and a hard place. And it's going to come from a series of cascading consequences. Mm-hmm. So the thing that we did is that we filed a complaint with the FEC. We need to pull the thread on what you were talking about in your intro about that advertisement that, that Rupert Murdoch acknowledged that he shared with the Trump campaign. That is an illegal contribution. You, you, the, it is very clear. The law is extremely well established on this. It says that corporations can't make a contribution, that non, that material, non-material things of value, material things of value can be counted as a contribution, yep. and that information about advertising strategy is considered a thing of value. So all of those criteria have been checked off. So we filed a complaint with the FEC and said, here's what Rupert Murdoch said he did. Here's what the FEC law is follow through on it now and give maximum accountability and consequences. So that's one piece. The other piece is that, and I think this does tie into this broader conversation where the power and the profit meet together because Fox News derives a lot of its power of its profit mm-hmm. from leveraging its power, not just politically, but to really drive up their relationships with cable companies. Fox News is the second most expensive channel <coughs> in everybody's yes. cable bill. Um, Carriage fees, yes. sub fees. And in, in fact, the dirty secret about Fox News is that they don't need a single ad to be profitable. Yes. They would still have a 90% profit margin if they had $0 in advertising revenue. And the same way that One American News was handled, uh, was, was held accountable in part because of what they were pushing about the conspiracy theories. That, but it was also that they were overpriced. They were six times market rate. That's yeah. what the cable companies were paying for them. Fox News is overpriced right now. It's overpriced. They are not consistent with market rate. And part of the reason they were able, they were able to get the, those big prices is because the way that they leveraged their audience for political power yes. is they leveraged their audiences during these cable fights. And yet they're a small minority of the larger cable consuming audience. So I, I do. I am not an optimist. I sit in the fever swamps every day. I know <laughs> you're how, counting the I, I, see, I see what this world is, how, how asymmetrical it is. But in this moment, we are at an inflection point. And I do think that there will be cascading consequences. I think shareholders will start taking action, too. I've already seen eight law firms begin to organize shareholders of Fox to say, wait, you breached fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. You violated your responsibilities. And I, I do. I think this is a moment. Now, it doesn't have to be. It's going to require consistency and persistence and action. But there is a real inflection point happening here. 
there is the business side of Fox and how it can be sort of leveraged into, well, how punishment may be meted out on the business side. But then there's a sort of democratic, the philosophical, like the, the implications of punishing Fox or not punishing Fox when it comes to democracy. Yeah. And the reality is that Fox has not been talking about this lawsuit mm-hmm. on its air. Yep. Fox viewers may have no idea that the lawsuit is ongoing. They may not know anything about these depositions. Do you foresee any kind of future where the Fox News viewer, which is a viewer that, with all due respect to our MSNBC audience, is probably not watching this network, maybe mm-hmm. not watching other networks, is very loyal to Fox, yep. where that viewer is ever told the truth about what happened? Yeah, I, I, I think possibly. Uh, I, honestly, and, and, and here's why I say that. In, in part, it's that, you know, what makes the Fox powerful is that it sits atop a large right-wing echo chamber. Yeah. And that echo chamber right now is going through a big sorting. Um, Rush Limbaugh's not around anymore. There's a lot more elbow room for audiences to, for people to grow their audiences. There's a lot of friction in discord. We saw some of that internal friction spill, spill out, out with the Kevin the- McCarthy fight with, with things that are happening now, even internally. So my only point is that there is this moment where actually they, w- that competitors, other right-wing media figures, and we've seen a little bit this, of this, these cracks start to emerge, say, wait, Tucker's not loyal. They're not loyal. They're elitist. They're out to get us. Now, some of them will go further to the extreme, small yeah. parts. Some of them will say, we got to find a better alternative. Some will move to more centrist publications. But what matters the most, and it gets into your point about democracy, nothing will get better in any durable or consistent way unless we neutralize the destructive influence that Fox News has on our, on our, on our country yeah. and on our politics. Angela Carasone from Media Matters with a dose of much needed optimism about what might happen here. We will keep you posted. You keep us posted. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your time with me tonight. We have so many more stories to bring you this evening, including my conversation with some parents of students at the Florida College that is under siege by Governor Ron DeSantis. They have a stark warning for parents everywhere, and that is this could happen to you. Plus, Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing her part to whitewash the January 6th insurrection and planning to bring a congressional delegation to visit January 6th defendants in jail. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. (music) 
While Fox News host Tucker Carlson has been using his airtime to offer a counter narrative of January 6th, portraying the Capitol riot as peaceful chaos, it is worth remembering that Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, who enabled this false narrative by giving Tucker Carlson access to the surveillance footage in the first place, it is worth remembering that Mr. McCarthy once had a pretty clear understanding of what happened that day. These men and women in the uniform, they got overrun. One officer got killed. I went down and said, they got broken arms. You don't understand what was transpiring at that moment in that time. People hanging, people brought ropes. When, when I got back into my building, I found the straps that they had. I don't know they'd come and try to kidnap somebody or whatever, but they, they were well planned for it. Fast forward to today, and Republicans now find themselves in the very uncomfortable position of having to either get on board with Tucker Carlson's alternate reality or actually speak the truth about what happened on January 6th. Yesterday, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell called Carlson's depiction of January 6th a mistake. Today, his Senate colleagues Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham also denounced Carlson's efforts. There's no question but that January 6th was a riot, a, an insurrection attempt, an effort to overturn the process designed in the Constitution to uh, allow the voice of the people to be carried out in, in who we have as our elected representatives. I don't take any part in whitewashing January 6th. It wasn't a stroll through the Capitol. Uh, it was an attack on our Capitol. Texas Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw also ridiculed the ELF effort, telling Politico today, if your message is to try and convince people that nothing bad happened, then it's just going to make us look silly. But not everyone agrees. Today, we learned that Georgia Congresswoman and McCarthy ally Marjorie Taylor Greene and House Oversight Chair James Comer are planning a congressional delegation to visit January 6th defendants in jail, a field trip to the D.C. jail to check in on the insurrectionists. House Republicans are also planning multiple new probes into January 6th, specifically the security failures from that day and potentially the treatment of January 6th defendants. Also, an investigation into the January 6th committee itself. That last investigation will be led by Georgia Congressman Barry Loudermilk, who, according to the January 6th committee, gave a private tour of the Capitol to a rioter the day before the attack. Joining us now is Tim Miller, writer for The Bulwark and an MSNBC political analyst. Tim, it's great to have you here. I always turn to you for a reading of the insanity inside the GOP, and today is no different than the other days. What happens in this fight to relitigate history? I mean, on one hand, the fact that you have some establishment Republicans coming out and saying it was an insurrection, don't believe it was anything else, seems like a good sign for truth. But the reality is that the base really likes to relitigate fights that make Donald Trump look bad. And Donald Trump seems intent on relitigating this. Marjorie Taylor Greene seems intent on it. You know, they're powerful voices in the Republican caucus. And I wonder how you think this ends. Yeah, it's a burden and a privilege to be the one having the expertise in this matter, Alex. Thank you for having me. Um, (laughs) Look, I I think that it ends not well politically for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy is is forced to, you know, let uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene carry carry him around on a leash and and determine what should be done for the caucus. Uh, Look, Mitch McConnell, there are plenty of criticisms you can you can levy at Mitch McConnell, but he at least has always tried to do what was 
the most politically palatable for the Republican conference in the Senate, you know, while doing what it needed to do to suck up to Donald Trump. So that was not a profile in courage, of course, but at least he was trying to always, you know, look to what was the best politically for Republicans, you know, when he was making these moves, when he's navigating Trump's craziness. Kevin McCarthy is just fully giving in to Trump. And and, and I think that, that this demand that was put forth by Tucker Carlson, remember, during the umpteen different ballots before Kevin became speaker, this demand that this footage be put out, the demand that we um, uh, relitigate the January 6th committee, the demand that we look into whether the DOJ wrongfully targeted the people that attacked the Capitol, those were all demands we put forth by the MAGA wing of the party and by Tucker Carlson. And and Kevin McCarthy has had to just completely give into them, not because it's the right thing for the party to do. It's obviously the wrong thing, as Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and others have said, but because it's what he has to do to stay in the speakership. Well, yeah. And Kevin McCarthy knows what he said that day. We played the audio where he's very clear about the threats he faced. We have footage from him on, on the floor of Congress talking about the dangers that day. He knows he said those things. And yet, I mean, Tucker Carlson, in a way, as you would tell it, is asking Kevin McCarthy to commit political suicide. Hand over the tapes or you don't get the speakership. But hand, once you hand over the tapes, it's going to put you in effectively an untenable position. So do you think I mean, is this do you think this issue animates the the fractious wing of his party enough that it could actually cost him the speakership in the end once these investigations are underway and a relitigation of January 6th is actually happening? Yeah, well, you can't. The reason why I speak right now is because you can't beat someone with nobody. Right. And and the mega wing of the party, you know, has a lot of people that are good on on Newsmax uh, and good on social media, but do, don't have a lot of people that are that are ready to replace him as speaker. So will it cost him a speakership? I don't know. But I think that it's a it's just the, a tiny preview of this box that he's put himself in. That's going to happen over and over again on issue after issue. Look at Kiev, for example. He was invited to Kiev by Zelensky. Any other speaker of the house would have obviously gone there to show solidarity with our ally, you know, to demonstrate foreign policy bona fides. Kevin can't do that because he knows that there's the pro the Russophile caucus, uh, it, you know, will be mad at him for, for going and hanging out with Zelensky. So he can't do that. The same thing's going to come up when when the um, when the funding comes around again for Ukraine. Uh, his own chief of staff said he's already put himself in a box on the debt limit to such a degree that he can't meet the promises that he's already made to his own caucus. So I, can he continue to survive uh, for a while, right, or until someone else comes up to challenge him? But, but I, I do think that they will continue to, to advance these total own goals, you know, that do nothing to help help the Republican Party broadly, but only serve, you know, his his political survival in the short term. Um, and, and I think this is just the first really high profile example and that there are going to be more to come. You know, you're between a rock and a hard place when your options are either relitigating January 6th or preparing the country for a catastrophic default courtesy of your own party. But that is where the Speaker of the House finds himself today. Tim Miller, thank you, my friend, as always, for making sense of the madness. Thanks, Alex. We have still more to come tonight, including more of my exclusive interviews from New College in Florida. This time I talked to parents who regret not paying better attention to what Governor Ron DeSantis was doing in their state until he came for their kids. And speaking of the governor, today he tried to distance himself from criticisms of his drastic overhaul of education in Florida, even as he and his allies in the Republican-controlled legislature are building on what they already started. That's next. 
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. This idea of a, of a book ban in Florida that somehow they don't want books in the library, that's a hoax. Uh, and that's really a, a, a nasty hoax because it's a hoax in service of trying to pollute and sexualize our children. Uh, we'll also talk about the black history hoax, the idea that somehow we're not teaching uh, about that and uh, not teaching about things like racial discrimination. Today we saw Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on defense trying to explain away the results of the 2022 legislative accomplishments he bragged about just a day ago during his State of the State address. DeSantis backpedaled at a podium, promising to expose the book ban hoax and providing this opening statement. Myth number one, Florida has banned books from the classroom. And then fact number one, here are the books parents found in Florida schools and reported to their school districts for removal which is very much still banning books from the classroom and also doesn't account for the shuttered classroom libraries across the state. The governor used a similar strategy to defend his stop woke law and his decision to reject a new AP African-American studies course. Despite DeSantis's efforts, people in the state who were affected by his stop woke and don't say gay laws do not seem to be buying it. These laws have had an undeniably chilling effect on classrooms and teachers and students across the state as they soared through the anti-woke provisions stipulated in those laws, sometimes under threat of felony prosecution. But already, DeSantis and the Florida legislature are adding to the legislative pile, shifting their focus to include state colleges. A new House bill on the docket this session takes aim at colleges' diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. It eliminates majors or minors in critical race theory, gender studies, or intersectionality, and it puts professors up for tenure review at any time. Even before that bill becomes law, DeSantis and Florida lawmakers have already planted their flag at a small public liberal arts school called New College. New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg has been closely tracking the changes on this campus. In January, she interviewed one of DeSantis's handpicked new trustees for the college, someone who's become nationally notorious for his fervent anti-CRT campaigns. His name is Chris Rufo. Goldberg writes, the fight over the future of New College is about more than just the fate of the small school in Sarasota. For DeSantis, it's part of a broader quest to crush any hint of progressivism in public education, a quest he'd likely take national if he ever became president. For Rufo, a reconstructed New College would serve as a model for conservatives to copy all over the country. If we can take this high-risk, high-reward gambit and turn it into a victory— we're going to see conservative state legislators starting to reconquer public institutions all over the United States, Rufo said. Should he prevail, it will set the stage for an even broader assault on the academic freedom of every instructor whose worldview is at odds with their Republican Party. That is the goal. 
of this new college trustee reconquer public institutions across the country. Last week, I spoke with some parents of students at New College. One of them has a non-binary child. The other is the parent of a biracial transgender child. Both parents told me they are terrified, and they want the whole country to know exactly what's at stake. I think it's important that everyone in the country knows what's happening here in Florida, not just at this school, but what's going to happen at the other public schools, because a lot of people have children in public schools. I just say, we have to keep speaking. We have to keep making our voices heard. And the truth is, we have to keep begging people in power to speak for us. And, And that's what I'm willing to do. I don't have any shame left. I, I did, I've never wanted to be on TV, ever. I'm terrified. I want, the, I want America to know what's happening here because I know that Governor DeSantis is running for president. I started seeing all of this book banning and the K through 12, you know, you can't, don't say gay and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, my kid's gonna be an adult soon. Well, then, it, then obviously now they're coming for adults in higher education and telling them how they can, yeah. you know, think and feel and express themselves and i was like wow and i started digging and i'm like wow this has been they've been slowly and methodically taking over school boards i mean they've been destroying things from the ground up now that i realize that i realized the mistake that i made i should not have put my head in the sand because it is definitely much more far-reaching than i had thought and i'm probably more far-reaching than the country realizes what are the implications if the college doesn't make it if it becomes something else what are the implications for for your son and your family i used to be a doctor i got sick and i spent most of my money trying to stay alive which now may not clearly may have not been the best decision um but we're going to make the sacrifices that we need to make to get our children the education that they deserve one way or the other this we're leaving for now because that might change slightly What do you think parents are prepared to do to save New College? I think they're prepared to do anything it takes, barring violence. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody wants to be violent. Um, But as far as financially and emotional support, um, they're willing to do whatever it takes. That say that America needs to pay attention. That pay attention. Yes. You are yeah. next. Yes. Yes. It yes. gets the point across. Exactly. Right. And that's the truth. It's the first. Yeah. And it's going to spread. And it's. Yeah. Well, it is spreading. I have never in my life felt such a sense of purpose. Never. I have never been so humbled by the people that I have met. My faith in humanity is restored because I feel like I was losing that watching all of the things that have been happening in the country in the last six years. I mean, it's personal, right? It's oh, it's, it's, so it's, personal, it's very it? clear cut and it's deeply personal. When you come after someone's children, there is nothing, there is nothing that is going to give a parent a better sense of, okay, <laughs> okay, I'm going to, I'm coming after you. Now, now you've pissed us off, quite frankly. When we come back, we will have more on what Governor DeSantis is doing down in Florida and why it's invoking comparisons to one of Europe's most anti-democratic leaders, Viktor Orban of Hungary. We will talk to Michelle Goldberg of The New York Times about those parallels coming up next. 
And later, Republicans are criticizing one of their own, one of the most high-profile projects of the Republican-led House. Stick around for that. This is a story, a cautionary tale, about a university in Hungary that no longer exists. It was called Central European University, and it was a prestigious private research school founded by a very famous Hungarian refugee named George Soros. The university ranked number one in the country. But for the far-right authoritarian government of Prime Minister Viktor Orban, the school was too liberal. It was too progressive. So he shut it down. If the story sounds familiar, it's because America is witnessing its own Orban-style attacks on higher education at the hands of Republicans. And as New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg writes, few are imitating Orban as faithfully as the Florida governor and likely Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. DeSantis's first victim is New College, a small liberal arts school in Sarasota that the governor considers too woke. Unlike Orban, DeSantis is not shutting it down, not yet at least. Instead, the governor is giving it a complete makeover. DeSantis wants to transform this tight-knit, inclusive institution into a bastion of conservatism, a model he hopes that will be copied all over the country. Joining us now is New York Times columnist and author Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, you've been doing great essential reporting on this, and you really draw the parallels between the authoritarian fascist regime of Orban and what the green shoots of what's happening down in Florida, uh, from cracking down on LGBTQ rights to uh, censoring political opposition to House Bill 999 that Ron DeSantis is pursuing that, that pursues dramatic, drastic changes to higher education. Do you think Ron DeSantis knows he's pulling a page from the autocrats playbook? Um, I think that you see, I mean, I certainly think that Ron DeSantis probably knows and admires who Viktor Orban is. You know, Viktor Orban has been a speaker at conservative conferences. They had a conservative political action conference in Hungary. There's a lot of cross-pollinization between the right and the Republican Party and the Hungarian regime that they idealize. You know, Tucker Carlson went there to interview Viktor Orban. So whether or not he's consciously molding this, like, series of legislative maneuvers on Viktor Orban's war on higher education in Hungary, I mean, the parallel there were already parallels with the war on critical race theory. Mm-hmm. It it kind of had echoes of the way Orban's regime had gone after what they called gender ideology or gender studies. But this House Bill 999, especially in concert with this um, attempt to remake New College, it just makes it so explicit. Yeah. I mean, you know, Orban banned gender studies. House Bill 999 bans public colleges from offering gender studies majors or minors. It puts the colleges hiring under these, um, it gives kind of a lot of new power to boards of trustees to decide political appointees, right? Which is the same thing that Hungary has done to its, to many of its public colleges. And so you just, you sort of what, what Chris Rufo, who is one of DeSantis's appointees to the board of new college, and who's also been a kind of chief ideologue of the war first on critical race theory, then on um, what they call gender ideology, now on diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, he very consciously sees this as a product, as a project of kind of taking over mm-hmm. liberal institutions and turning them towards conservative. And is explicit about it. What yes. I, what I don't get, it's like the ultimate gaslighting to basically be steamrolling fascist policies into the state and, and, and doing so under the banner of freedom and rights. That's what I don't get. How, how is this being made palatable to people who understand what fascism and authoritarianism are and the fact that 
that it's a rising dark tide across the globe and then see it at home as it's being presented under the auspices of, you know, reasserting your individual rights. How does how how can they possibly be packaging it as such? So, you know, sort of why people buy it is hard for me to say. Yeah. But I think what they've what they've done sort of in this astonishing way is gone from posing as defenders of free speech mm-hmm. against, you know, quote unquote, wokeness. And Ron DeSantis is, you know, he has a stop woke act. He talks about, you know, Florida is where woke goes to die. His you know, primary political project is basically crushing what he calls wokeness, which yeah. he has which he has um, presented as a threat to free speech. And so in order to crush this threat to this threat to free speech, he justifies these policies that are far more threatening to free speech than anything that we've seen in our lifetime. And so I think it's by demonizing, you know, all sorts of things that they put under this umbrella of wokeism as a kind of totalitarian menace. Yeah. It licenses this unbelievable barrage of illiberalism. Yeah. Literally in the phrase of one of the bills is don't say, I mean, (laughs) right. That's not freedom of speech. I do want to talk about how this is a model that's being replicated elsewhere in the country and where you see, where you see the greatest kinship between what DeSantis is doing and well, between with what DeSantis is doing. Is it Yunkin? Is it in Virginia? Is it South Carolina? Is it New Hampshire? I mean, do you really think DeSantis seemed like he was on the defensive today a little bit, defending his policies. And I wonder if you think people are beginning to check him on this or whether you think the momentum is in his favor and this is going to be replicated elsewhere. I actually think both at the same time, right? Because what he's what DeSantis does is is very similar to what some of these anti-abortion lawmakers do is when the implications of their policies become clear. And we see, for example, you know, women being turned away when they're having miscarriages. They say, Oh, that's just liberals misinterpreting the laws. And so right. he sort of pretended that these, you know, examples that we've seen from Florida of books being either taken out of classrooms or covered up and, you know, very kind of innocuous biographies of people of color being removed from the shelves. He'll say that this was just a misinterpretation of the law when the law is written with such vagueness that it's kind of terrorizing to people who have to worry about running afoul of it. And so I do think that he, Yes, it's very hard to justify, you know, the kind of images of empty bookshelves. On the, at the same time, it doesn't, you know, and the kind of war on wokeness didn't work very well for Republicans in the midterms. But nevertheless, you see the huge energy around DeSantis. The energy is because Republicans and conservatives see him, um, you know, kind of attacking their enemies. That's why he's a plausible contender for president. So I don't see how he backs off on it. It is his signature move, as they say. Michelle Goldberg, always good to see you. Thanks Thank for you. time. We have one more story for you tonight about infighting in the Republican Party over Congressman Jim Jordan's pet project. That is coming up next. It's been one month since the Republican-led House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government held its first hearing, and it has still failed to provide any evidence of the purported weaponization of the federal government. Republican Jim Jordan's pet project has apparently been overpromising and underdelivering when it comes to exposing alleged abuses by the government. A recent headline from Axios reads, Jim Jordan scrambles amid claims weaponization probe is a dud. 
This comes after Democrats on the committee put out a report drawing attention to the fact that Republicans on the panel were not relying on testimony from actual government whistleblowers, but instead on conspiracy theorists with ties to former Trump allies. And now the committee is taking heat from those who traditionally might support its efforts. Just yesterday, a former top staffer for Republican Senator Chuck Grassley went on Steve Bannon's show to say that the committee is just structurally set up to fail and that the reason is this is a failure on Jim Jordan's part. He went on to add, quote, Jim Jordan is just not a serious person. Even Jesse Waters over at Fox is worried, pleading on air, make me feel better, guys. Tell me this is going somewhere. In response, Jordan defended his panel's work to Semaphore in an interview, saying, I feel like our staff is working their tail off and we're getting things up and rolling. The chairman has threatened even more rounds of subpoenas and testimony from whistleblowers, and he has promised more in the days to come. The panel's second hearing is slated for tomorrow. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.